Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 299, Does the New Testament Teach Trinity Monotheism? With Dale Glover, Part 1. This and the next episode of the Trinity's podcast are my presentation of a conversation slash debate with young Canadian evangelical apologist Dale Glover. This time we focus on the New Testament and specifically whether or not the New Testament teaches or implies that the persons of the Trinity are three selves, which are three proper parts of the one God. In this first part, after some initial discussion about whether or not belief in God as Trinity or some kind of Unitarian theology are strictly required for salvation, then Dale and I each give our opening statements, each one giving a summary case for his position from the New Testament. In his opening, he presents the argument that you can see in the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. In my opening, I present a concise case that the New Testament teaches that the one true God just is the Father alone. I focus particularly on four facts, which I claim constitute strong evidence that the New Testament authors were Unitarian in their view of the one God rather than Trinitarian. Here then is apologist Dale Glover. Hello and welcome back to Real Seekers. I, I'm your host, Dale the Real Seeker, and today I, I'm joined by someone the, the audience will be familiar with, one of our honored guests, Dr. Dale Tuggy. Dale, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Dale. We had you on, uh, I think about a month ago, discussing the philosophical or logical coherence of the Trinity, but we, we kind of left to the side the issue, well, okay, let's pretend I, I did a great job and, and the Trinity is logically coherent. You still had other objections based on, well, is it biblically coherent or biblically consistent? And that's what I want to focus on in, in this show, is the notion of the Trinity and or even Trinity monotheism, which is the, the model I went for it, is that consistent with the Bible itself? In the first place, just to sort of kick off the discussion, so I know that you're familiar with all of the various philosophical models. Let's pretend, for the sake of argument, I am able to convince you that the Bible itself does teach that there are multiple individuals that do in some way or another constitute one God. Are there any philosophical models that you think come close to representing that? Or how would you come to grips with that philosophically, if I could establish that? That's a pretty big if, but uh, if there are really three divine individuals that constitute one God, certainly the Father and the Son have to be selves. So then I would have to reject all the one self views and probably go for a three self view, assuming I was convinced that the Holy Spirit was a person just like the Father and the Son. And if you say they're parts, that rules out a lot of the three self views as well. I mean, you're, you're looking at something more like the theory propounded by William Lane Craig or uh, the Christian philosopher Stephen Lehman, which explicitly says that the persons of the Trinity are parts of the Trinity. I mean, traditionally, that's wildly unpopular because the more traditional Trinitarians accept divine simplicity, which rules out that God has parts. And so the more traditional Trinitarians don't ever want to say that the persons are parts of God. But that is one way of uh, understanding Trinitarianism as not confused. You just say, well, there's one God, there's three parts of that God. 
you've basically dropped the traditional, you know, claim in the Athanasian creed that each one individually is God or fully God or all of God by himself. If you drop that, yeah, you can make sense of one whole with three proper parts. Gotcha. So there, there would have to be, if I could establish this, this big if, that it would, there would have to be some sort of part whole relationship thing going on there. You know, you, you would have to deny some of the later creeds or something like that. Yeah, there's been recent work on this. All these three self theories, they try to, you know, show some kind of quote unity for the three. But the thing is, most of the factors they point to seem clearly consistent with three gods. They share a nature. Well, why couldn't three gods share a nature? They're necessarily unified in will. Well, why couldn't there be three gods like that? They enjoy perichoretic unity, like their minds are transparent to one another or something like that. Why couldn't there be three gods like that? And it looks like the answer is conceivably there could be. So then those factors don't show how the three are one God. Yeah, but if you make them proper parts of a whole, okay, well, I think you took care of that problem. However, it's not clear that the persons are fully divine, right? Because now they're just God parts. None of them is a God. More traditional view would be all of them are God, but they're the same God. But now we're saying, actually, they're parts of God. I just wanted to get that out there, not not to present myself as overly ambitious or anything like that. Um, I, I know that you're um, well familiar with the, the material and that sort of thing, but let's get straight into it. Let's look at the what the Bible itself has to say. And in our first show, I put forward one of, one of my questions to you was, you're a Unitarian. Is it essential to believe Unitarianism in order to be saved? And I just wanted to sort of put forward a case, well, what about on the opposite end? Because for me as a, a Trinitarian, I do believe that belief in some kind of multiplicity within the Godhead is essential to belief. And, and I did want to try and present a quick, what are, what are my evidences for this or reasons? Why do I think that the quote-unquote Trinity is essential in one form or another. So just to, to quickly lay it out, there are two explicit verses that I think can prove that believing in Jesus' deity is essential to salvation. The first of those is Romans chapter 10, verses 9 to 13. Basically, in that verse, it, it's saying that in order to be saved, one must confess Jesus as Lord. In context, when it's using the word Kyrios or Lord there, it's talking about Yahweh and it's it's referencing referencing an Old Testament book where the Lord is identified to to Yahweh. Um, so it's not just saying he's a Lord in terms of like a non-divine or, or human authority or something like that. You know, it's it's actually associating confessing Jesus as the Lord in the sense that the Old Testament uh, uses the word Lord. You know, it's referencing Joel chapters 2 and 32 and chapter 3, verse 5, uh, where you have to call on the name of the Lord. Paul seems to be associating confession of, as Jesus as Lord with this Old Testament text saying you have to call on the name of the Lord or name of Yahweh at the time of his return to be saved. The second explicit verse is in John, John chapter 8, verse 24, which is basically Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and 
he uses the divine name and applies it to himself, I am. And if you do not believe that Jesus is I am, you will die in your sin. So these are the, the two explicit verses in a nutshell that I think do kind of hint that you, you have to think that Jesus is uniquely associated as Yahweh in some way. And if you don't, then you're going to be damned. And the final argument is an implicit argument. So, so Dale's got a, a great video where he tackles the three different ways people can argue to be a Trinitarian. So I, I've taken two of those. Um, but yeah, with, with the implicit argument, basically, I, th- I think there's countless verses. So I, I won't name any specific ones, but the, there are countless verses that I think Tuggy will agree where it's, it's important that we recognize, show proper worship to Yahweh alone. No other deities, n- nothing in creation. Showing the proper uh, attitude towards Yahweh as the only God, the only creator, the the only one worthy of of worship is essential. You know, you you can be killed. It's a capital offense if you don't, if you worship pagan idols or something like that. So there's this implication that ensuring that you're showing the proper attitude only to God, whether that's a Unitarian God or the, a Trinitarian God, that the people that are associated with God, there's this strong implication that that's essential to salvation. So that's basically my three-pronged reasons as to why I, I do think that it, it is essential to, to recognize the truth about God's nature. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll turn it to you, Tuggy, for your response. So about worship, I'll have a lot more to say about that when we get to my opening statement in a minute. But I agree with the late Larry Hurtado that the New Testament justification for the worship of Jesus is not that he's the one God, but rather it's that the one God has raised and exalted him to his right hand. He's not a God. He's not a rival God. Worshiping him is to the glory of the God who raised and exalted him. That's the New Testament idea. About the other verses, I mean, I don't think they show what you want them to show. So take uh, Jesus' statement in John 8, 24. I told you that you would die in your sins, for you will die in your sins unless you believe that I am, I would translate it as I am he. And I think you can find the key to this four chapters earlier when Jesus is talking to the woman and she says, I know that Messiah is coming who's called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he. So in Greek, just I am the one who is speaking to you. So you look at the end of John, you know, what you have to believe is that Jesus is God's Christ, not that he's God. And there is no divine name in John 8, 24, but only the phrase, ego eimi, I am, which is normally translated as I am he or I am the one. It's a phrase used for self-identification. We know what the punchline is of John. He, he's very clear about that. So... I think it's an overreading to to say he's ha- you have to believe that I am God himself or something like that or that I have a divine nature. About Romans 10, I mean in the very same verse he's distinguishing between Jesus and God. He says if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's two different beings there. This is how Paul always is. Look at the start the very start of Romans, he distinguishes between God and Jesus. Now, he does apply in verse 13, uh, an Old Testament text. I mean, you have to remember there are no quotation marks in ancient times, but yeah, he's seemingly reproducing the wording of some Old Testament text when he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
And in their original context, the Lord there, that would be Yahweh, the proper name of the one God. But he just thinks there's another application. When you take a Yahweh text and apply it to Jesus, you're not supposed to infer that Jesus is Yahweh himself. And no New Testament writer does that. And no character in the New Testament does that. Because that's a fallacy. I call it the fulfillment fallacy. Just because you're fulfilling a prediction that was originally about someone, it doesn't follow that you're that same someone. They thought that scripture could have multiple meanings because God's really the author, and they think Jesus is another fulfillment. So it's like the text in Isaiah, you know, about this baby who's, who will be born, whose name is Emmanuel. That was a baby in the time of Isaiah. And I believe traditional Jewish interpretation is that that was King Hezekiah. Okay, so when Matthew says that that was fulfilled in Jesus, he doesn't think that Jesus is Hezekiah. That's not his point at all. But what he thinks is that there's another fulfillment of this prediction, and Jesus is it. So let's respect the distinctions that the authors are making and not overread them. Both of these authors distinguish between God and Jesus constantly. I don't want to spend too much time on this because I know that we want to get to, to the main case. Um, yeah, I, I guess I'll just ask a couple quick follow-up questions if that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so, so I hear you that getting it right in terms of is God a Unitarian concept or Trinitarian or, or whatever uh, is not essential in your view. Do you mind just maybe listing to the audience, what, what are the essential beliefs? So, so obviously you think you have to believe Jesus is the Messiah or, or God's Christ. But yeah, do you mind just sort of listing, like, what what are the essential things that one needs to believe and do? I'm not sure you can give a precise essential list. I mean, look, it's it's a transaction between persons. It's a personal relationship thing. So it's coming to a new covenant relationship with God. But the way the New Testament summarizes what has to be believed is basically the slogan that Jesus is the Son of God or that Jesus is the Christ. And so I think it's, it's the propositions that are in and around that that you could say are required. It's kind of up to God what he wants to require. He, he knows what individuals know and what they should know and you know, what can be demanded of them. And it might be somewhat different. But obviously, you have to believe in God. You have to believe that God sent Jesus. Uh, if you believe that, you're going to believe that as Jesus predicted, he was raised and exalted, um, that he was a sacrifice for sins, and that he's now ruling under God and will be a judge. So th- things like that. I don't think you can put precise boundaries around it, but I like the New Testament summary of it, which is basically that Jesus is Lord, the Lord Messiah, the one Lord under the one God. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Um, yeah, cool. Um, yeah, I just wanted to get that, that take from you. In terms of John, you mentioned that, so it's saying, I am, I am he, and, and there are, in chapter 8, it does say these sorts of things, but I think in the verse that I'm talking about, it, it just says, I am, which is a very specific reference. So, um, so this is in Larry Hurtado's book, and he says, look, in, in Greek, the phrase, I am, without a predicate, is meaningless. So there, there must be some sort of esoterical significance of the of the use of this. And they argue when you, when you look in context of the Old Testament, this is the divine name that was that God gave to Moses at, at the time of the Exodus and that sort of thing, that sort of thing. So it's really that that is is signifying. There, there's more to it than just saying, "Look, I I'm he. I'm I'm the Messiah." 
that's not right as concerns the grammar. I mean, it's a, it's a formula of self-identification. So that's why in John chapter 9, when they're interrogating the man born blind who is healed by Jesus, and they say, hey, are you the guy that used to beg by the gate? He says, ego a me. Yes, I'm, I'm that man, or I, I'm, I am he. Uh, when Jesus is walking on the water in one of the Gospels, I, I think it's Mark, and he says, don't be afraid, it is I. Yeah, that's same phrase, ego a me. That's, that's a right translation. So whenever you see I am he, I think in the New Testament, the translator supplies the, the pronoun he there, but it's, it's, it's ego a me. Okay. All right, cool. And so in Romans 9, 5, and the reason I'm, I'm quoting this is it, it's connected to the Romans 10, you know, Romans 9 through 11 is all sort of connected. This actually calls Jesus God, ho theos. It, it's one of two examples. I think Titus 2, 13 also says this as well, but it, it's, it actually says Jesus is God. You know, I'm, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. And then later on in verse 5, to them belong the patriarchs, patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all. So this would seem to, to be connected, and it, it actually calls Jesus God directly. So, yeah, like, what's your take on, on that? A biblical perspective is the word God can be applied to beings other than God. So even if it's calling Jesus God directly, that shouldn't be thought a way of identifying Jesus with the one God, right? Satan's called the God of this world, but he's not the one God. This is a notoriously difficult verse precisely because of the Greek grammar involved. And so you can read many long articles about this. And what the experts will tell you is that it's ambiguous. And so if you look in the New Revised Standard Version footnotes, they give you a, ver a translation on which Jesus is not called God. But my point is, let's interpret mainly by the clear text. And I'll talk more about God terminology in the New Testament in my opening statement. I think there's some important context there. But um, yeah, we don't want to build any doctrine on difficult to translate verses where the grammarians uh, seem to not be able to settle the matter. So right, just, just look at the rest of Paul. He distinguishes the one God from Jesus constantly. A couple of times he calls the Father the God of Jesus. So he doesn't think they're both God. He thinks the one true God is the Father, just like he says in several places. What about the implication argument? It's saying that it is, it is important to show the proper reference to only God and, and nothing else in, in creation and that sort of thing. Um, what, what was your take on that again? So just an argument from worship, like from worship to the deity of Christ? Um, well, recognizing the, the absolute uniqueness of God, whatever that is, and, and only towards God, like not ascribing false praise or worship to things that don't deserve it in creation because they're not God. I think that's very important, as Paul says in Romans 1, to not worship the creature rather than the creator, right? That's what the, the idolaters and pagans do. The New Testament perspective is worship of Jesus isn't that. It's not worshiping a creature rather than the creator. It's, it's honoring God by means of honoring his servant who he has exalted to a place of honor. So it's really not comparable to idolatry, and they're not worried about that kind of objection. I think some theologians and apologists think there's this ironclad rule that the only being that can be given worship in principle just is the one God himself. Keep in mind that worship just means honoring. There's lots of people we should honor. We should honor our rulers. We should honor our parents. 
But even in a religious context, I mean, the New Testament perspective is that we also religiously honor the Son of God. So you see this most prominently in Revelation chapter 5. Chapter 4, you have God on the throne, and then Jesus who has been killed, the Lamb who has been slain, is brought into his throne room. And then the people in this scene, this heavenly uh, vision, they worship God and they worship Jesus. Not because Jesus is God, but because of his service to God. They're quite explicit. So they worship God because he's the unique creator, the one true God. In chapter four, chapter five, they worship Jesus because he's bought for God people from all the nations, just to paraphrase. So they think there can be a worship of someone who's not God if it's authorized by God. Yeah, my, my only issue, though, is so Trinitarians are ascribing more than just what you're saying you think that the New Testament says, right? Like that we are worshiping Jesus as God. So do you think the, the implied argument would sort of imply that full-on Trinitarians, people that believe in the Nicene Creed, were, were in trouble because we're worshiping the, the creature? Or It's not a good thing. It, on a practical level, it involves people confusing the two together and giving honor that should go to God alone to someone who is somebody else. This is not a good thing, but I don't think it's a salvation disqualifying thing. Um, the same people will also turn around and distinguish Jesus from God and think of them as two, particularly when reading scripture. So, I mean, when you're confused, sometimes you think P and sometimes you think not P. Your mind can't find a place to rest. And I think that's how, in practice, Trinitarian commitment works. Sometimes you think Jesus is God himself, and sometimes you think he's somebody else. And then you try to kind of split the difference between those somehow by taking a more subtle position. But the New Testament writers are pretty firm in not confusing the two together, right? They're just, they're two beings. One's a man, one's a God. But still, nonetheless, the exalted Jesus is, is very godlike in his position and power and glory. So there's that. But anyway. Okay, perfect. So, so as promised, yeah, I'll let that topic go so we can concentrate on the main question that you want to focus on. When the Trinity's podcast returns, my opening statement, a summary case that according to the New Testament, the one God just is the Father alone and not the Trinity. What is the fact of the matter is, and we sort of hinted on that above, but, you know, what is the fact of the matter? Is the Trinity true? Is Trinity monotheism true? You know, if I want to get really specific, or is Unitarianism true? And uh, with this topic, I'm going to hand it straight to, to Dale Tuggy to to make your opening case. Um, you can take, you know, 20 minutes or whatever time you want to, to do that. Okay, thanks, Dale. So I'm going to sketch my outline case from the New Testament that the one God is the Father and not the Trinity. Here's how I would make the case. The doctrine that the one God and the one Jesus calls Father are one and the same, this is a clear and consistent teaching of the New Testament. 
Look anywhere the New Testament authors mention one God, the only God, the true God, the Almighty, the Lord, who is the unique God of the Old Testament. This same one is called God the Father in the New Testament. In contrast, the later Catholic doctrine that the one God is the Trinity, this is not a clear New Testament teaching. And so we have to rely on rickety and shifting arguments to allegedly show that this teaching of God as Trinity is implicit in the New Testament. Further, the very content of this Trinity doctrine is up for grabs. It is and always has been unclear. The bishops and the emperor in the year 381 made Trinity language mandatory, but even then there was a lot of unclarity about what that language meant. Incidentally, we know that a teaching of a tripersonal God is not implicit in the New Testament, for if it were, it would have been noticed earlier. Clear implications are grasped immediately by competent readers. Yet we don't see this teaching of a triune God until the second half of the 300s AD. But in this discussion, I'll say no more about history, sticking with the clear teachings of the New Testament writings. So back to the New Testament, either the one God just is the Father alone, or the one God just is the Trinity. Each position rules out the other. And someone who accepts the New Testament as authoritative should go against later traditions, accepting the New Testament teaching that the one God is just the Father himself. In John 17, 1-3, Jesus reveals his belief that the Father is, quote, the only true God. If the Father is the only true God, then no one else is. And in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul tells us that while the pagans believe in various gods, as far as Christians are concerned, there is, quote, one God, the Father. In John 8, 54, Jesus says to his Jewish opponents, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, he of whom you say, he is our God. Right, the God of the Jews, the only God in both Old Testament and New Testament, is the one Jesus calls my Father. Jesus and his Jewish opponents agree on this. In Acts, the message preached to the Jews is that the God of our ancestors has glorified his servant Jesus. Let us humbly agree with the theology of this most important servant of God and believe that the unique God is the one he teaches us to pray to as Father. Let us agree with him even when prestigious Catholic intellectuals, theologians, philosophers, and other learned people side with later speculations about God being the Father, Son, and Spirit. God is necessarily at the top of the heap. No one who is the one God can be under any God. But the New Testament explicitly states seven times that the Father is Jesus' God. And Jesus is portrayed as calling the Father my God in seven other places. These Father as Jesus' God texts are not the subject of significant interpretive, translation, or textual disputes. They are explicit, as clear as can be. Do we want to know who the one God is? Listen to Jesus, if indeed you respect him as your master and teacher. Although he towers above any mere prophet, and now that he's exalted, he must be worshipped even by angels, still in the New Testament, like you, Jesus is subject to the unique God, the Father. In John 20, after his resurrection, Jesus says to Mary Magdalene, Do not hold on to me, because I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. In the New Testament, Jesus is not taught to be the same God as the Father or any God at all. There is only one God, the Father, and he is, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.3, the head of Jesus, his Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15.20-28, Paul could hardly be more clear. 
that even though all other things are subjected to him, the risen and exalted Jesus is still the servant of the one God, God the Father. We should agree with Paul, who is an important hand-picked messenger from the Lord Jesus. In the rest of my statement, I want to highlight four indisputable facts about the New Testament, facts which you can check for yourselves after the discussion is over. Each of the facts would be very surprising if these authors thought that the one God is the Trinity, but none would be surprising if these authors think the one God is the Father alone. Thus, these facts strongly confirm my thesis that in the New Testament, the one God is the Father. In other words, that they are Unitarian in their theology, against the thesis that these authors really think that the one God is the Trinity. So first, grab a concordance or look in a word index in your study Bible or do some word searches in your favorite Bible app. The first fact is that in the New Testament, the word God nearly always refers to the Father, while no word in the New Testament refers to the Trinity. If the New Testament authors were Trinitarians, we'd expect them to sometimes use the word God to refer to the Trinity. But they never do. Not according to me, but according to all competent textual scholars of the New Testament. We'd expect them to somewhat spread the title God around between the three, often calling the Son or the Spirit God in addition to the Father. But this is not what we see. In the New Testament, God is nearly always the Father. All textual scholars agree, in a small handful of cases, no more than eight in the whole New Testament, it can be argued that the word God refers to the Son. But we know that in biblical terminology, a human who is subject to God can be referred to or addressed using the title God. Jesus makes this very point in John 10.34, quoting Psalm 82. We also see it in Hebrews 1.8-9, quoting Psalm 45. While many Latter-day readers suppose that only the one God should be called God, biblical authors don't assume this. Even so, all New Testament authors are very stingy about applying the word God to anyone other than the Father. This would be surprising if they were Trinitarians, but it's just what we'd expect if they hold that the one God is the Father alone. The word Trinity only appears in Christian writings starting in about the year 180 A.D., but my point is not just about that word. It is vanishingly unlikely that the New Testament authors believed in a triune God and yet had no word or phrase whatever by which to refer to that God. The very first thing a Trinitarian will do is to coin a word or a phrase to refer to the triune God as such. They needn't use the word Trinity. They could just coin a new use of the word God. They say, by God, I mean all three of them, Father, Son, Spirit. Or they could talk of the heavenly three, or the triple God, or the divine three, and make clear that this is supposed to be the one true God. But we don't see any term or phrase in the Bible which was then understood to refer to a tripersonal God. These authors' lack of any word or phrase for the Trinity is exactly what we'd expect if they instead held the one God to be the Father alone. This fact confirms the thesis that they were Unitarians over the thesis that they were Trinitarians. To move on to the next point, when you seek to comprehend any serious writing, it's always smart to look for its thesis statement. When we do this with the four Gospels, we find something that would be shocking if these authors were Trinitarians. So my second fact is that all four Gospel writers feature a mere man-compatible main thesis. That is to say, a thesis which one can easily accept while believing that Jesus is human and not divine. This thesis is that Jesus is God's Messiah, his Christ. 
While this thesis is plainly and repeatedly stated throughout these books, it is highlighted at certain key moments. In the first three Gospels, Jesus privately asks his disciples who they think he is, and their leader Peter replies, you are the Messiah. And he gets it, right? That's the point of the narrative. And towards the end of the fourth gospel, John states his main thesis, which is, These signs are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. Wait, that's it? Nothing about Jesus being God, God the Son? Nothing about Jesus having a divine nature, being a God-man, or being the second person of the Trinity? Nothing about his being one of the three parts of God? This simple thesis only mentions the man Jesus' uniquely important role as God's Messiah, his Christ, his anointed one, saying nothing at all about his deity. It's not at all surprising if the author thinks the one God just is the Father, but it would be shocking if he were a Trinitarian. This fact again confirms that these authors are Unitarians, not Trinitarians. Fact number three is that the New Testament writings without embarrassment or explanation present Jesus as both limited and as dependent on God. Let's start with his dependence on God. New Testament writings explicitly assert that Jesus gets his mission, his authority, his message, and his power from God. In a sense, the New Testament Jesus is sporting a number of divine qualities. Who could be a savior? Who could preach God's word? Who could forgive sins? Who could do things that require divine power? The New Testament answer is God's anointed one. God is working through this man and has empowered him in unique ways. No writer shows any embarrassment about Jesus' dependence on God in these ways, even though for a Jew, the Almighty God does not take orders from anyone, does not get his authority, message, or power from anyone. Do these authors make the convoluted distinctions beloved by some Trinitarians that Jesus was subordinated to God as a man, but not as divine? We don't see that anywhere in the New Testament. And they always present Jesus as having some obvious limits in comparison with God. Jesus tells us that he didn't know the day or hour of his future return, although God did. These authors are unembarrassed to imply that Jesus at that time knew less than God. Hence, their consistent portrayals of him as learning, asking questions, even feeling anxious about what's going to happen. Like us, the New Testament Jesus puts his faith and trust in God. They even quote him without comment as implying that God is good in some way that Jesus is not. Mark 10.18 Again, the New Testament is explicit that God is immortal, whereas the man Jesus died. Happily, his God and our God then raised him and made him immortal. In contrast, we should believe that God is essentially immortal, and this not because of any other. It's just part of his divine perfection. The New Testament always portrays Jesus as a real man. He has a real human mom, although according to Matthew and Luke, not a human father. Rather, God miraculously makes Mary pregnant. Jesus, the angel in Luke 1.35 says, is begotten in Mary by God. As with ordinary human reproduction, it is assumed here that Jesus was brought into existence at some point in this miraculous pregnancy. He's not portrayed as traveling from some other realm to enter Mary's womb. But the one God, by definition, is eternal. He never began to exist. He can't be begotten. How can these authors sit back while the reader infers that Jesus came to exist in this miraculous pregnancy? Notably, no New Testament author shows any concern whatever to assert the eternal existence of the Son of God. 
Unlike partisans of the Nicene Creed since the 4th century, New Testament authors don't say anything to rule out that Jesus came into existence. Now, if you think there's some New Testament passage that teaches Jesus' pre-existence, his existence before his conception, I'll remind you that he's supposed to be a real man, a descendant of David. But for the purpose of this debate, I can grant you that Jesus existed before the world was created. That would make him really old. But notice that existing before the creation of the cosmos does not imply having always existed. That's just not a New Testament teaching. All these apparent limits on Jesus are simply left to stand in the New Testament. This is incredibly unlikely if the authors were Trinitarians. Trinitarians would not want to leave you with the impression that Jesus is less than fully divine. But it makes sense if they simply had no need to argue for the deity of Christ, because, like other Jews, they believed in exactly one deity, God the Father. Which, as I mentioned, is a clear and foundational teaching throughout the New Testament. Now, you may be thinking, not so fast. The New Testament does portray Jesus as divine. It does this by authorizing the religious worship of Jesus. Now, I agree that they authorize the worship of Jesus. But in their view, this is because the one God has exalted him to his own right hand, not because Jesus is divine. And when you look at the whole worship pattern displayed in the New Testament, it strongly confirms the thesis that these authors are Unitarians over the thesis that they are Trinitarians. This brings me to my fourth and final fact. In the New Testament, only the Father and the man Jesus are worshipped. One would expect Trinitarian authors to command, model, or portray worship of the Trinity as a whole, or at least worship of all three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. We see these in countless later liturgies. But in the New Testament, there are exactly two objects of religious worship which are God and the human Son of God. This is plainly seen in the visions of Revelation chapters 4 and 5. One might worry that two objects of worship means two gods. But Paul explicitly teaches in Philippians 2.11 that the worship we give to the exalted Jesus is, quote, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is not a second God rivaling God. Rather, he is God's Son, and it honors God when we worship Jesus. His exaltation to God's right hand implies that all must worship him, not as God, or confusing him with his and our God, but rather as the exalted Son of God. It is not a case, as Paul says in Romans 1.25, of worshiping the creature rather than the creator. Jesus, being a man, is a creature, yes, any human by definition is a creature, but in worshiping him, we thereby worship the creator, the one God who raised and exalted him. The New Testament pattern of worship would be quite a shock if these authors were Trinitarians. First, we'd expect to see the Holy Spirit worshipped at least once, but it never happens. Second, we'd expect the Son to be an ultimate object of worship, like God, so that worshipping Him isn't to the glory of any other. But as we've seen, Paul explicitly teaches the opposite. Third, we'd expect to see the triune God worshipped somewhere, anywhere, but that never happens. Nor do we see the later Trinitarian idea that the Father and Son are two persons within God, and so they could somehow count as the same God, so maybe worshiping any of those persons counts as worshiping all of them. That's not a New Testament idea. The actual New Testament pattern of worship disconfirms the theory that the authors are Trinitarians, and like our other facts, confirms that they are Unitarians. So to summarize, the theology of the New Testament is Jewish. They hold that there is one God. 
the Old Testament, he's called Yahweh. But in the New Testament, they substitute the Greek word kurios for that name, which we translate as Lord. But most often, he's just called God or God the Father. These authors don't confuse him, the Lord God, with his human son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, there are two who are called Lord, but there is one God and one unique Lord under him, as Paul confesses in Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, and 1 Corinthians 8. In conclusion, let's review our four facts. In the New Testament, the word God nearly always refers to the Father, while no word there refers to the Trinity. Second, all four Gospels feature a mere man-compatible main thesis. Third, the New Testament writers, without embarrassment or explanation, present Jesus both as limited and as dependent on God. And fourth, in the New Testament, only the Father and the man Jesus are worshipped. None of these can be reasonably disputed. Each one would be very surprising if the New Testament authors think that God is the Trinity. But none would be surprising if the New Testament authors think that God is the Father alone. These provide powerful evidence for the thesis that New Testament authors are Unitarian in their theology and not Trinitarian. As good Protestants, I urge that we should agree with them. Thank you. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dale Glover makes his opening statement in which he argues that the New Testament, rightly understood, implies what has recently been called Trinity monotheism which is that the persons of the Trinity are three selves, which are three proper parts of that one whole, which is God the Trinity. for that opening statement that I told you in, in private, I really appreciate the systematic approach. And it, it's kind of a Bayesian type approach, you know, what hypothesis makes sense in light of these these data that you're giving. So yeah, I think that's something to think about. Now I'm going to put forward my case, but I, I'm going to apologize to both Dale and the audience because um, I typed up 30 pages worth of prep notes based, you know, to have like organized Bible verses and, and responses to objections. It looks like I saved the rough copy of my notes, which are a little disorganized in that. So um, just forgive me if I'm not as organized as I was planning to be if I'd saved the proper notes. I'll spend some time making my case here. So as the the audience knows, I'm a, a social Trinitarian. I believe in the Trinity monotheism model. I tried to come up with a, a deductive argument to, to try and argue as close as we can for that. But I, I want to admit straight up that there's nowhere in the Bible that where it explicitly teaches the Trinity monotheism model, um, nor does it speak of God as one being with three persons. This type of philosophical language, I, I think, came later as Christians took the raw elements of the, the scripture and made sense of it using Greek philosophical terminology. So what I like to do, I, I prefer Richard Bauckham's approach, his notion of the divine identity. I, I think it's really helpful and, and puts the relevant scriptures in the context of Jewish monotheism, saying that Jesus and the Holy Spirit and God the Father share in the quote-unquote divine identity of God. So just to, to lay out 
the premises of my argument. So, so premise number one would be the Bible clearly says there is only one God. Just off the top of my head, the Bible verse that I would have quoted would be the Shema, De- Deuteronomy. And there are quotes by Paul quoting Deuteronomy and affirming, yeah, there, there is only one God here. In, in terms of that God, in the Hebrew, it, it can be a complex unity. So however you define that, it's an open concept. But I think we would both reject divine simplicity on that front. Premise number two is that God the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit are distinct individuals or persons. They stand in interpersonal I-thou relations to each other. So no Bible verses to help me, but just off the top of my head, Jesus speaks to God, prays to God in the Garden of Gethsemane and says, not as I will, but as, as you will, talking to God the Father and that sort of thing. So premise number three is anything which has one or more of what I call the Yahweh identifying features or the God identifying features is minimally a proper, distinctive, and essential part of God or Yahweh. So in in terms of God identifying features, I think in the Old Testament, Richard Bauckham really lays it out. In the first place, there are God's or Yahweh's extrinsic relationships to Israel as a nation, you know, God's role in salvation history. Um, But the main one that I want to focus on is God's relationship to creation. And, And there are three elements or features that mark out God. If you went back in time to the time of Jesus and asked someone, what makes you different from the pagans? What what makes your God special compared to Zeus or, or you know, Ares or something like that? And there are three main elements. So the, the first is there's creational monotheism. The Jews saw God, God alone was the creator of everything, of all of creation, the the universe and space and time and and everything. So the second thing is eschatological monotheism. So that's where God alone is the sovereign ruler. And and in the end, he's going to redeem creation. He's going to rule over, you know, everyone will bend the knee and that sort of thing. And then the third and final one is cultic monotheism. So this is where Dale and I would kind of disagree a bit. It's only God is the being worthy of worship no creature that can't be delegated to a creature through the use of intermediary figures or something like that premise number four is that god the father jesus and the holy spirit are all said in to have at least one or more of those yahweh identifying features thereby associating them with yahweh proper and then premise number five is while the trinity monotheism model that we spoke about last time does entail that god the father Jesus and the Holy Spirit are distinct individual persons. They, they stand in I-thou relations, but they all exist within the one being, the one God or Yahweh proper. And, you know, my conclusion is that this seems to be consistent with what we learn about in the Bible, that there are three uh, divine individuals who share in this identity of God. So, th- so that's my argument in a nutshell there. In terms of the premises, so I think I'll focus on, just off the top of my head, I know that the two major ones, I wanted to look at Paul and I wanted to look at John, because they're the earliest and the latest writings of the New Testament. So with Jesus, for example, how do we know he had these identifying features? Well, John chapter 1, verse 1, a very famous and and commonly cited verse, says, look, in, in the beginning was the Word, and this Word was with God, so it distinguishes him from God the Father. And he was God. And I think the best interpretation of that that most uh, scholars give is that this is really saying he was of God. 
Now, Dale Tuggy has a, a great video on that. He he kind of outlines problems with that because he he goes there are four different views um, that one can read this. But I'll, I'll let him bring that up in the question period. I think there's at least two other views that he doesn't mention there, and one of which is consistent with Trinity monotheism. So you could say, Jesus, the Word was with God, meaning God the Father, and He was God, meaning God the Trinity, because it it uses it can use that word in a non-philosophically precise way, and it, it often does. In the Shema, for example, I think that that was talking about the Lord, you shall worship the Lord your God. It's talking about the Trinity there. It's not talking about just God the Father. But later on in verses, you can tell that the Jewish people do use this inconsistently, and they associate God the Father as God. They just make this assumption, and that's why they use singular personal pronouns. But my thing is I think it's a mistake to be too uh, strict with using precise words and saying, well, this is a singular pronoun, therefore it must be God the Father that's being spoken of here. I think there is kind of a looseness that can be used, and I, I apply that to John 1.1. And the other verse that I wanted to use was Philippians chapter 2 from Paul to say that Jesus is associated with eschatological monotheism as well as, as cultic monotheism, you know, Jesus being worshipped and that sort of thing. There are various elements with the Philippians. Okay, so it's, so it's associating it with creation. We worship Jesus above all creation. It's saying that he was in the form of God, and uh, a linguistic argument that Tuggy's aware, of, Dale, Dale's aware of, with his debate in Chris Date is: Look, this is unique to Jesus. So whatever it's saying, this is being in the form of God is is unique to Jesus. It's not just speaking about being in the image of God or something like that. It's it's an entirely different thing that. Jesus has here. And it seems to be saying, based on the word use, that Jesus had equality with God. It wasn't something that he needed to grasp for. He lost that during his time of humiliation. And then he was exalted again after his resurrection and that sort of thing by God the Father. Other arguments, apart from the linguistic thing, is, well, this this verse is associated with Isaiah chapter 45, which is specifically an eschatological and cultic monotheistic verse, according to N.T. Wright. You know, it's talking about how the end times are going to come. Uh, and again, I don't have the verse in front of me, but um, this is a strictly monotheistic verse. And from what I remember, that in Isaiah 45, it, it's specifically talking about pagan gods like Bel and Nebo and, and ruling them out and making a strict monotheistic statement that at the end, you're, you're only going to worship Yahweh and that sort of thing and, and have Yahweh at that level. But yet in the New Testament, Paul is here saying Jesus is on that level as well. N.T. Wright also makes an argument about Adam. Jesus is the new Adam in, in Paul's thinking, and this references Genesis 1-3. So there's kind of this illusion or contrast where Adam, you know, he wanted to grasp for God. He wanted to have knowledge like God of good and evil, whereas Jesus didn't need to do that. So there's that contrast of an argument. And also, you can't describe this to some intermediary figure because uh, scholars have looked at, you know, various intermediary figures where certain works of God or duties of God are delegated to certain features to a degree. They're, they're never given to the degree of, of where Jesus is. There's a hard cutoff because, no, that belongs to God and God alone. I think that the best examples are Yeol in the Apocalypse of Abraham, according to, to Bauckham. There's, there's also Meshizedek in another uh, non-biblical book, and, and they, they really seem to delegate spe special functions to these intermediary figures. But there is this hard cutoff where Jesus uh, alone, he 
in the first place gets this divine thing. They they can't be worshipped, and that's explicit in the New Testament with you know saying don't worship Peter or don't worship an angel or something like that. They're just creatures. So there is this hard distinction, and that becomes especially strict in Second Temple Judaism and would make sense with the apostles who are from Galilee, rural Galilee and that sort of thing. So I think that's a more likely interpretation. Okay, so one thing I do want to admit here is Dale is correct when he says that, objects that, look, in Acts chapter 2, the apostles present the gospel, they don't mention anything about Jesus' deity there. So I guess it wasn't needed or more probably, they just weren't thinking about it. And and I actually do accept the position that I, I don't think, in the first place, no one knew of Jesus' deity until after his resurrection. I, I kind of agree with Bart Ehrman's take on that. I think that's where it, it kind of get a, got started, where they realized, well, Jesus is associated in some unique way with Yahweh himself. He, he's to be identified through his functions or, or the works, as, as N.T. Wright uh, would put it. And it's the the identity of personal self-continuity, as I think how Richard Bauckham would say it. It's not numerical identity or anything like that. Now, what about the Holy Spirit? How do I associate the Holy Spirit? This is often a neglected, pneumatology is often a neglected field here. So essentially, I think there are two ways that the New Testament identifies the Holy Spirit to be associated with Yahweh as part of this Yahweh. So the first is in regard to the new Shekinah. So in the, in the Old Testament, there are verses about Yahweh. And at the end, so again, this is associating through eschatological monotheism. It's saying there's going to be this new presence of God. After the Babylonians destroyed the temple, the first temple, and the second temple was built, there's this sense in Judaism, look, the glory or the presence of God, the Shekinah never returned. And it was an eschatological promise that Yahweh would return to Zion. This is how it's argued that the Holy, both Jesus and the Holy Spirit represent this returning of Yahweh. And through verses like 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 uh, to 7, verse 1. There's also Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. And these are associated with the Old Testament text, like Ezekiel 37, 27, or Isaiah, Isaiah 52 and 11. So it's, it's saying that Jesus and the Holy Spirit are the ones that fulfill these functions that were specifically unique to Yahweh. And the, the second way to associate the Holy Spirit is, again, similar to what I said here, but it's, it's this notion of the new exodus. So the Holy Spirit represents this new exodus. Things like Galatians chapter 4, verses 3 to 11. Again, 2 Corinthians is, is another one that's really huge in terms of the Holy Spirit. So ch- chapter 3, verses 7 to 18. So that kind of associates the, the Holy Spirit with God's, what's ascribed to God's work, you know, working in their hearts, ascribing God's law in their hearts and, and turning their hearts of stone into fleshly beating hearts and that sort of thing. Well, it's the Spirit that performs that, even though the Old Testament says that's going to be Yahweh. That's something that Second Temple Jews would say, no, only Yahweh does that. So that's the association with the, the Holy Spirit there. So from these associations and from the fact that with premise three, we can establish that these are identifying features of Yahweh. They are unique to him. They, they can't be delegated in full to any intermediary figure. This is what gets us to the conclusion that, well, Jesus, God the Father, and the Holy Spirit are all distinct individual persons, yet they are uniquely associated with Yahweh, the, Yahweh proper, in that they can be distinct and and essential parts of it. That's exactly what Trinity monotheism teaches. So 
yeah, that's it for my opening case. So, sorry for the disjointed nature of that, but uh, that was my fault in in posting the the wrong document here. So, yeah, um, over to you, Dale. I'll, I'll turn it to you to to give your take or to kind of probe me on that opening case. Next week, Dale and I spend a lot of time going back and forth, arguing about these biblical issues, and it starts off with my trying to poke holes in the argument that you just heard. Thanks to Dale for a good discussion. On the blog post for this episode at trinities.org, you can find a link to his Real Seeker Ministries. This week's thinking music is the track Number Zero by Jesse Spillane. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can listen to or download that entire track. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.